of moms are more like puppies. Like we love our children unconditionally. Like there's nothing wrong they can do. I always say like, you know, the Arab mom is like, Habibi, I give you my eyes. And the Pakistani mom is like, prove to me that you're good enough. Hello and welcome to the Alien Chronicles. I'm your host, Sadia Khan, and our today's guest is Suzy Afridi. She's a Palestinian-American stand-up comedian. Yes, you heard it right. She is a comedian. Susi Afridi was born and raised in Jericho in the West Bank, Palestine. Her dad was a welder and her mom, well, according to Susi, was a reluctant farmer. When Susie was only 14, her family immigrated to San Jose, California. She attended San Jose State University. Susie is an accountant by profession, but she realized in her words that she sucked at it and she decided to pursue another career. By the way, I have seen her stand-up act and she is amazing. She lives in Manhattan with her husband and a kid. We'll talk to Susie about her journey to America, why she chose to do stand-up comedy and her life as a Palestinian-American married to a Pakistani-American. <laughs> Welcome, Susie. So good to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here. So, Susie, we'll talk about your childhood first. What was it like growing up in Jericho, Palestine? Um, what was the culture like at home, traditions that you guys followed? You know, it was an ideal childhood. I was born in what is considered the occupied Palestinian territories. And, you know, if you saw like the, the late 70s and early 80s when I was growing up on TV, where I was born and raised, you would think, oh my God, you know, this place is so scary and there's like tanks and demonstrations all the time. But our childhood was amazing because my parents had a farm in Jericho and we attended this like little Catholic school. It was just idyllic. Uh, my my dad would go to work. My mom would go to her farm. And in the summers, we would just swim in this pool by the farm. And when I compare it to like my nephews and nieces and my child's, experience, I, I, I feel bad for them because I, I think we had so much freedom. So you think your children, like our children don't have that kind of freedom here? Well, it's also like the comparing between uh, suburbs and the city because I'm, I'm raising a kid in the city. But at the time that we were growing up, we thought things were bad because it was still occupation. Like it was a, still a military occupation. But then when I went back to the West Bank in 2012, I realized things were much better when we were growing up because before Oslo, there was freedom of movement. Like on the weekends, my dad would take us to the sea, to the, the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, the Mediterranean, Lake Tiberias. I mean, there's that, that was like our, our, those are day trips. But now people who are, have grown up in the West Bank in the last, I would say since Oslo, so since the 90s, I haven't seen the sea. Like my cousin's uh, nephews, have not seen the Mediterranean Sea because there's no freedom of movement. There's no um, interaction between the Israelis and the Palestinians. When we were growing up, there was lots of interaction. So you mentioned that your father had a farm yeah. and you also, like when we were talking and I've also seen um, your Facebook page where you mentioned that your mother was a reluctant farmer. Yeah. What does that mean? What do you mean <laughs> by your mother was a so reluctant farmer? So Palestinians are... By nature, like peasants, we're like, we're simple people. We're not like cosmopolitan, like urban people. And one of the ways that they uh, sort of demonstrated against the Israeli occupation is by not buying their products. 
And and that area is known for farming. I mean, like 10,000 years ago, when, when man first went from eating animals to farming, the, the, that's what happened. It's called the Fertile Crescent for a reason. And so because it's known for farming, the, the first thing that the Israelis do, did by ethnically cleansing people is to sort of take away the farmland. And so a great way to sort of um, protest the occupation is to farm and to to grow your own produce and not have to buy Israeli produce. So, so my mom was, I guess a better word than reluctant would be like an acti- activist farmer. So she was trying to show her activism through farming, yes. which she probably would not have done otherwise. No, she was, my mom was, my, my dad was a welder and my mom, my mom, my dad had to like leave school in order to take care of his family because he was the oldest of eight or the second oldest. And my mom was educated, like she had a high school degree, but she wasn't allowed to go to college because sexism. Um, <laughs> and so she was a teacher. Like my, my mom had, my mom, my mom and dad had six kids. And the first generation was born in the early 60s. So with that generation, she was a teacher. And then, you know, 67 happened, the war of 67, when the occupation started. I was born after that. So then after that, in the early like 70s, she, she started farming. They leased the farm and she hired laborers. And it was more of a, like an activism so that we don't have to buy, so that Palestinians don't buy Israeli products. It seems from what you're telling me, you had a very comfortable childhood. You were living a very normal life. Yeah. And then your mom decides to uproot everybody. And when you were 14, you guys immigrate to the U.S. Now, this is around the time when there was first Intifada, which was a Palestinian uprising. So there was political turmoil in the 80s when you left. Why do you think your mother took that decision? And did it have anything to do with what was happening on the ground at the time? You know, Sadia, for the longest time, I thought it was my parents' personal decision that we moved. Like, I thought it was like their own choice to migrate to America. But when I went back in 2012 and I I researched I realized that w- with Palestinians, it's the the it's ethnic cleansing. There's no question, because what happened was my my oldest sister got married, and then she sponsored my mom, and then my mom got the green card. Like even my my husband, who's Pakistani, they got the green card through an uncle. This was like in the 70s and 80s. It was pretty easy to get the green card through family chain migration, which is what Trump is against. Yeah, I mean, um, I would call it. Uh, family reunification yeah because I think um, that's probably a better phrase yeah that is a better phrase because I think with chain migration people just you know misconstrue it um, and and take it more negatively yeah so my sister got married moved to America then she sponsored my mom and then my two older brothers moved to America as college students because you know just like in Pakistan when you're ready to go to college you go if you can go to America you go And so then for a long time, we were kind of separated, like three in America and three in the West Bank. And my mom would come back and forth. Now, Palestinians don't have a a passport. We don't have uh, papers. So -hmm. if you're born and raised in the West Bank, you don't have, you don't get Israeli citizenship. And you get something called laissez-passer, which means like, let them go. There's a comedian, um, Mo Amr. Mo Amr, he has a special on Netflix called Vagabond, where he talks about like, using this for 20 years like he just didn't have a passport so how do you travel then you travel with this like un type document it's like a blue document that just literally says just let them go and you get it 
it's hard to get. It's not a passport. It's not, it's not like it doesn't belong to any state because there is no, there is no Palestinian state. So my mom like couldn't travel until she got the green card. So when she got the green card, she would come in the summers and spend uh, some time with my, my brothers and my sister. And actually, funny enough, she would leave us with the, with the nuns of the Catholic school, <laughs> which was kind of designed like a boarding school, but we were the only children. My sister Jane and I were the only ones. And we loved it because we learned, these were like nuns from Malta. They would teach us how to make pasta and how to be self-subsistent. And we had a good time. And then after two or three times of her coming and going on the green card, so what happens is that the third time she came in, the Americans said to her, you cannot travel on this green card. This is not a passport. This is a chance for you to live in America. So next time you come, if it's not a one-way ticket with your children, we were all under 18 at the time, with your children who are under 18, then we're going to take the green card away. And that, that would be a nightmare because then you'd have to like reapply, redo the paperwork. And so... I don't think they do that to any other nationality. I, th- I mean, I know Pakistanis who go back and forth, you know. And the- yeah, but I think they they are very discouraging of that, though. Yeah. They don't like it because the idea is if you have a green card, then you should live in that country. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know exactly how to what extent. Yeah. But yes, there is. I mean, I think they discourage everyone. Yeah. So my parents ideally would have preferred that. We also come to college, and but they stay there because we were kind of like, I would say like middle class, maybe upper middle class there. We were very comfortable. We lost everything. We lost the farm. We lost the welding shop. We moved and then we became like poor all of a sudden. We had nothing because my dad couldn't work because he didn't speak English. And my mom, and then he didn't, he wasn't feel, like, he wasn't well. I told a story for an immigration show about this, that, you know, when the, when the, when the man comes in his 50s, it's very hard. To adjust because English is so hard to learn as a grown up, and I think like you know I remember saying in the story that my dad died of diaspora like he just mm. like couldn't like he he lost everything he lost his daily socialization he lost his you know who he is like being the breadwinner of the family he wasn't anymore it wasn't like retiring it wasn't like he was playing golf but he was just like forced not to work and so it was very hard on them and and I think if we were from any other country. The kids would have come to America to study and then they would have stayed there and they would have maintained our home there. But because of this, you know, the settler colonial state is trying to get rid of the people, they sort of make it easy for, I think that they work with the Americans to give Palestinians uh, green cards and just get rid of the people any way they can. So you think Palestinians get more green cards like relative to other nationalities? Or is it like, because from what you're saying, it seems like um, Palestinians may get it easier, like easily than other nationalities. So, you know, when when um, Trump first passed the Muslim ban, I like I think America's always had a Muslim ban. So my, my family is Christian. And I think from my experience, from what I've seen in my community, that Christian Palestinians or Christian Arabs, it's very easy for them to get a green card or to get uh, asylum to come to America because American America is a Judeo-Christian country and they think that any Christians all over the world are being persecuted. 
I was actually going to ask you this question later, but now that you've mentioned, um, as you said, you are a Palestinian Christian. And for those listeners who don't know this, there is a sizable population yeah. of Christians in Palestine. Yes. What kind of reaction did you get like initially or even now? What kind of reaction do you get? What is the bizarre thing, the most bizarre thing that anybody has ever said to you because they didn't know that you were like Christian, Palestinian Christian? You know, Satya, it's so interesting because in my in my daily life, like I live on the Upper West Side, right? So I joke that I'm the only Palestinian in my zip code other than the halal card guy. <laughs> so, and ever since I married uh, Sak- Sakeb, who goes by Saks, I find that I'm usually like the first Palestinian that people meet. Be- wow. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know if that's because Palestinians are insulated. Uh, you know, when they come to America, they live in small communities, and we're really we're not that many. It's not like I mean, I think Pakistan's population is like, what, 200 million? It is 200, yeah. All Palestinians, like all together, I would say like in America, in the West and in Palestine, I think all of us are like 10 million. Mm. So I think relative to our size, we get way too much PR and like TV coverage. (laughs) (laughs) So we're self-absorbed. I always say we're like the Kardashians. Like we think the world revolves around the Palestinian (laughs) cause. (laughs) And I read this quote the other day that I have representation fatigue, like when you're the only person of your people in the room and you have to like, you know, be on your best behavior and know all of the history. Like I have to like I have to be able to argue the cause back to 1948. Like, of course, I know all of that because that's what we talk about at home. <laughs> no, but like in terms of you being a Palestinian Christian, how do people? Because, oh, yeah, uh, that's even more shocking yeah. because... Arabs are associated, like in, in America, if you read this book called Real Bad Arabs, Real is spelled R-E-E-L. It shows you that in, in, in the media, in American media, whether it's movies, on television, news, we are portrayed as terrorists and, and it's all conflated together, like Arab, Muslim, terrorists, all conflated. So they don't really like, the media doesn't really market the fact that there's Christian Palestinians because then, oh no, then then they'll be relatable to to Christian Americans, and so it it is even more shocking. Like people people don't know that there are Christian Arabs, and I think that there used to be a lot more Christian Arabs living in the Middle East. But I think my theory is that they get asylum and green cards easier. Yeah. Going back to your initial years in the U.S., um, you mentioned that it was not an easy time for your family, especially your dad. Yeah. What was it like for you? What was the biggest cultural shock you had? And what were some of the frustrations that you went through as as a 14 year old? You know, 14 year old is hard to begin with. Like, uh, you know, you're, you're like adolescent, your hormones and stuff. And then on top of it all, Everything changed. You know, our school changed. Like we went from this like cute little like private Catholic school to a public, bad public school. I didn't know it was bad at the time. Like it wasn't only later that I realized when my son attended public school that I realized not all public schools are bad. And so going to this like, you know, a public high school and my parents not working all of a sudden and and they aged like I describe in this one story that I told for an immigration show that like overnight, they just became my grandparents. Like they stopped being parents. They stopped parenting and they became more like grandparents, like aging grandparents who need to be taken to doctors and hospitals. And and so it was shocking on every level. Like I lost my homeland and I lost my childhood all within a year, like the, the, the 1988. And I gained weight. America is very fattening. 
<laughs> I gained like 40 pounds. I remember we moved in February. By the end of the year, I don't know, I, I was telling my sister Jane this. I was like, we woke up and all of a sudden our parents are old. Like we're in this terrible school and there's nothing we can do. We didn't, we couldn't articulate anything. And, and we also couldn't complain because you're told that, you know, this is the greatest country on earth and you're lucky to be here. So I remember once like expressing concern, like I came home and I said, mom, there's this girl in chemistry class who is putting makeup on and curling her eyelashes. And I think kids here are not, they don't come to school to study. They come to meet boys. <laughs> and um, my sister who had been in America like longer than us, she's like, oh, this is just how, you know, American culture is like that. So we never, we were never allowed to complain or, or voice concern. And my parents were not, they were smart, but like, they weren't like, you know, some immigrants, they look for the best school. They buy and they buy a house like near the best school district. They're, they're involved in their children's like college admission and stuff like that. There was none of that at home. Like there's. What about your older siblings? Because they had been here before your parents. They, so they were familiar. I'm assuming they were familiar with the culture and they had been to colleges here. Were they helping out or so they, in my, what ways were they yeah. supporting? My oldest sister didn't go to college. She got married at 16, which, you know, now you realize that that's not OK. I think girls should not get married before 26. Absolutely. And then my brothers are engineers. And so they just went to like the state school. And they, there was this assumption that you just go from high school to the community college to state school. Yesterday, we had these friends over who are visiting from Chicago and they are looking at colleges. So I was telling the boy, he's like 17 years old. I said, you're so lucky that your parents are so involved. Like my parents had no clue what we were doing. They're so lucky that we were good girls to begin with because we could have done anything. We could have done drugs and like <laughs> been wild and... So you attended San Jose State University. Yeah. And what, what what did you study there? So again, like immigrants, you know, they encourage you to study immigrant jobs. Like, like you know, if you're, if you're not good at science, which I wasn't, I was always like a words person. They encouraged me to just study like accounting and just, you know, accounting is such a safe immigrant job. And so looking back, like when I discovered comedy and storytelling, I thought to myself that, I mean, I'm not blaming my family. It's okay. I thought if I grew up in a family that encouraged like speaking out and public speaking and expressing yourself and, you know, making observations. If I grew up in a non-Arab culture, I would have been a comedian by probably like 15. Yeah, <laughs> I would have been going and doing open mics. But none of that, like when you express yourself in an Arab home, it's considered like rude or, you know, like, you know, we value Pakistanis are the same. We value like the shy girl who keeps her head down and, you know, doesn't even laugh too loud. <laughs> and I think with immigrants, it's this notion of, oh, we want our kids to have professions where they can just sustain themselves. Yeah. I think this this is at the back of their minds always. I when we moved here, obviously, my parents didn't know that we would eventually come here for to study and all. But always there was emphasis on engineering, medicine. Yeah. I hated both. <laughs> so I did like bachelor's again, ended up doing bachelor's in like math, stats, economics, which is not too far from, you know, that and then an MBA and all. And you're absolutely right. That's that's yeah. how they perceive the world. So you did accounting. Uh, did you practice it? And how, yeah. long, how long did you practice I it for? I was the worst accountant. I would literally <laughs> like just file extensions like from April to June, June to 
I used to work with the expats, so you could you could keep extending until December. <laughs> <laughs> and December was my crunch time. <laughs> so were you still in California when? So yeah, I I we moved to San Jose, California. From 14 until 27, 28, when I met my husband, we stayed in this like stucco three-bedroom house in San Jose, California. And I went to community college and then San Jose State. And then I worked at Deloitte. Remember, like this was before Deloitte became like mostly consulting. So I was doing tax there. And then I moved to this like small startup called My CFO, which was fun. But it wasn't my calling. You know, I wasn't good at it and it wasn't my calling. And then when I met Sachs, he said, um, he told me right away, he said, I want to move to Dubai. Part of it was because we wanted to be close to his parents and to be close to Pakistan because he's the only son. He has a sister, but, you know, it's, he has like, they have their ancestral homeland and in the village. And he felt it was important to to sort of start a family in near the, near Pakistan. And so I was I was cool with that. But the only thing was that there was no career options for me in Dubai because in Dubai, high net worth people don't account for their wealth and then they don't pay taxes. So <laughs> like my, all of my experience was just out the window. So how long did you stay in Dubai for? You know, we didn't end up staying very long because the, um, remember the market crash that hit mm. in 2008? It hit Dubai sooner. We moved in 2005. So oh, we lived in San Francisco for a couple of years after we got married. Mm. And that's because at the time, my husband wasn't sure what we, like, he was kind of doing graphic design, but also he wanted to do a career change. So then it made sense that I work and support us while he sort of transitions. And he he loved it because, you know, like, you know, this uh, Pakistani parents don't really encourage transition. Yeah. Once, they have said- once you have a 401k, they, they're like, why would you leave a 401k? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they have these set careers in their minds. Yeah. Uh, they still do. Oh. It's never too late to become a doctor. Yeah. Like, I'm sure you go home and your mom is like, "It's you." I filled out your application. Oh my God. Go. I started the same with my daughter, which is sad because <laughs> I, and now I've stopped myself because when she was born, I was like, okay, I'll have a doctor. And But I did change a bit because I have like decided my older one will be a doctor. My younger one will be a lawyer. Yeah. So my husband and I are covered for life. <laughs> but now I'm like, you know, they should do whatever, whatever. they want. They want. Yeah. yeah, one of your interviews, I heard this guy who's, I think, from Nigeria. Yeah. Or he said something really smart. He said, you know, a kid is born, you're excited. And the second he's a teenager and makes a decision that you don't approve of. You go crazy. You go crazy. You're like, I gave birth to you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that was, I mean, my husband gives me a lot of credit. He's he's the most charming man you'll ever meet. Like, he's much nicer than I am. <laughs> and he says, you know, if it wasn't for those two, three years where I worked and and gave him sort of like, the time to find his, you know, yang. And he was able to take uh, classes and and sort of like find his calling. So then we moved to Dubai uh, for his career, uh, which was advertising. Okay. And then, but we didn't last. We lasted like two and a half years. And then we moved from there, we moved to New York. So we've been in New York ever since. So why did you choose New York and not go to California? Oh my God. He uh, did not like California. I did not like California because... You know, we were both urban people and the closest thing in, Cal- in Northern California where we lived is San Francisco. And San Francisco has the worst of the city and the suburbs. Mm-hmm. You have to have a car. The schools are bad. Tons of homeless people. <laughs> like you can't walk. It's it's And it's expensive. It's super expensive. It's actually more expensive, I think, than New York. And he had lived in New York before before we even met. Oh, So he was in love with New York City already. And he that was always on his 
agenda too. So when we realized that Dubai wasn't going to work out long term, I think it was hard on my in-laws because they wanted us to be close to Pakistan. But it it was just the, the market was crashing and people would leave their cars, you know, like people would leave their cars that were alone in the parking lot with a note to the bank. People would leave mortgages and just uh, like because they would lose their jobs and they can't afford to pay their debt. So Susie, when you came back to New York, did you work as an accountant in New York or did you just make a switch? No, because I had a baby in Dubai. And then by the time we moved to New York, I had not been working for like three years. And at first I looked for jobs, but then I wasn't at a high enough like level career wise to be able to just come home at five. You know, I thought, okay. I'm probably going to spend all my earnings on a nanny. But even then, if I can come home at five, it's fine. But it wasn't like the, the kind of uh, job that I would have gotten. I would have had to work like 16 hour days in order to prove myself. So I think that if I had like really focused on my career in my 20s and 30s, I could have maintained a career and being a stay at home mom. But because Saks had long hours, it just didn't make sense. Like It didn't make sense financially at all because I wasn't at a high enough level to 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 basically cover the nanny, cover my expenses. And, and, I, and I really enjoyed being home. So it was an excuse. I just stayed, I was a stay-at-home mom for until our son was about five. And then I had a midlife crisis. <laughs> I went to the therapist and, and I, that's how I found comedy. <laughs> I have seen your comedy like, on YouTube and it is amazing by oh, the way thank and you. You're I, so kind. I encourage all my listeners to check out your YouTube where can by the way they find um, your like what, what is there a YouTube channel that you have or? it's all Susie Says So like at Susie Says So my Twitter my Instagram my YouTube how do you spell it S-U-Z-I-E S-A-Y-S So yeah, I would yeah. I would highly, highly recommend. And what I've seen is, especially with your opening act and even throughout, you do talk about different stereotypes about Arabs yeah. and about Pakistanis. And you do it in a very self-deprecating yeah. way, which makes it very funny. Yeah. But you're also very aware of the differences like between your culture and your husband's culture, which is so refreshing. Yeah. And what are you trying to achieve through that? You know, these are like comedians usually like just process what they go through. And it's mostly observations. Like when I had my son, uh, my husband, when you, are you married to a Pakistani? Yes. (laughs) So, so the good thing is that there's no culture clash with parenting. With us, you know, we had a culture clash with parenting. Like he had his ways, which was more, I mean, I, I, I hate to, to stereotype, but it was like his mom was more of a tiger mom. Yeah. Uh, most Pakistani moms are tiger moms. Yeah. I, would, uh, I would like to think I am one too. Yeah, yeah. You, you probably are. <laughs> <laughs> and then Arab moms are more like puppies. Like, like, like we love our children unconditionally. Like there's nothing wrong they can do. Like I always say, like, you know, the Arab mom is like, Habibi, I give you my eyes. Like, and, and, and the Pakistani mom is like, prove to me that you're good enough for my love. Yeah, that's true, actually. That's true. And every, like, let's say you prove it today. Tomorrow you start from scratch. You start from scratch. And, and we're never happy. There is no, like, earned credits. Like, yeah. I always tell Saqib, like, your, you know, your mom is like, well, I've done this in the past, but it's every day I have to start from scratch. And, and we're never happy. We never. want more. No, we no, want more. more. <laughs> that's so true. Yeah. So it's, it's really like it's extreme opposite. Like the, the, I think that we are too relaxed. The Arab mom is too relaxed. This is just based on my experience. Like I hope people don't like attack us. <laughs> the, yeah, the Pakistani mom is sort of like, like if you look at a, a line, like we're 180 degree difference, right? 
And so that's something that really, like, I laugh at it now, but we we would fight about it. Like, you know, he, like, if our son misbehaved or something, I couldn't handle it any other way other than my wiring, my own parenting wiring. And so then, you know, I, of course, I am one of those people, like, anytime I have an issue, I go to the self-help section in the bookstore. (laughs) And so I found this great parenting philosophy, and it's kind of halfway, and, and we settled on it, but I had to fight for it. I had to like, you know, like as convince uh, Sachs to to go with it. And so a lot of that struggle comes out in that, you know, in the, my opening joke about work ethic. So it's really like that struggle of parenting a kid with two different cultures. You know, it's interesting you say that because when I look at my parenting and I've been told by my husband and, and, and other people as well, oh, you're not strict enough. And again, what you're saying, yeah. we start comparing ourselves to other moms. Yeah. Now, I don't want to stereotype, but I will look up to like Jewish moms and I would look yeah. up to Indian moms yeah. and, and, you know, East Asian moms. And I'll be like, oh my God, I am not doing enough. Yeah. So <laughs> for me, it's like this this race. I have to do more, more, more. Uh, I know. So, Susie, what fascinates you about comedy? I'm assuming it's like part skill, part attribute. I'm sure you had like knack for it. And then you just, you know, you honed your skills. And because you, again, as as I said, you're amazing. Oh, thank you. So, yeah. I remember clearly, like it was 2013. We went to see this comedian uh, who did his whole uh, set in Arabic. And he, he's he's Korean, but he did his whole set in Arabic. And all he talked about was being a fish out of water. And I remember waking up three days later saying, that's what I want to do. If I had seen that, you know, 20 years ago and and was in a environment where self-expression was allowed, I would have probably discovered comedy much sooner. And so for me, it's I find it like cathartic and therapeutic. And and then so I find it like that for me personally, for my personal issues, because if, if you listen to my comedy, you'll see that a lot of it is personal storytelling. Yeah, like, I'm not I don't think I'm political. But I contextualize the jokes in geopolitics because people want to hear, you know, like about like people want to hear the associations of the geopolitics. And I think when you do that, from what I have seen, uh, you do it in a way where people are not offended by no, it. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I've it, never offended anyone. Yeah. And when you hear that, you're like, you know what? Uh, to me, it's more informative in a funny way yeah. where people will be like yeah you know because I think comedy is the best medium for that the best because I think it's the best tool that we can use to tell people or at least call out biases and stereotypes and all of because again it's self-deprecating so you make fun of yourself while highlighting the stereotypes uh, and the biases that people have so I I I just love it so the the educational part like when when people come up to me and say that was a paradigm shift that's for me that's secondary I like my primary concern is to entertain you and to, for me to feel good also, like it's kind of selfish. Like, you know, you write a joke, you're like, I want to try it in front of a live audience. Then you go and try it. And then if it works, you're happy. And the secondary sort of effect is that you're dispelling myths about about us and you're educating people. What about your family now? Do they approve of it? Do they like it? Because what you said, like initially, I mean, obviously they wanted you to have a very safe profession. Yeah. So what are, what is their reaction to all of this now? So like, because I don't, you know, depend on my family financially, because uh, uh, Saks is extremely supportive. Initially, they were worried about what I'm saying. Sometimes they would, because they're they're not, they're all in California. So they, they never saw me live. 
they would say, you know, don't say this, don't say that. But I completely ignore them and I just say whatever I want because it's comedy. It's, I mean, I think the best thing about America is the freedom of expression. And if and where can people find your life? Like, where can they go and see you live? The best thing to do is to follow me on Instagram and Facebook because that's where I post shows, like any upcoming shows. Right now I'm taking a little break because I'm having a baby <laughs> any minute. <laughs> <laughs> but the best thing to do is to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Susie Says So. Because so, I post uh, upcoming dates, but I I'm, I only do New York because I can't really tour. Yeah. So, Susie, you are an immigrant, right? Yeah. Uh, that's that's one of your very strong identities. I always ask my guests about um, how would they describe America in one word. But with you, I want you to describe it from a comedian's perspective. Uh, how would you describe America in one word? It's so hard because it's hard to reconcile what America has done in the past, you know, with with ethnically cleansing the Native Americans and not like uh, like and, and enslaving people and not paying them ever, it's hard to reconcile these things and you know and all the warmongering it does in the Middle East with the fact that it's still the greatest country. Like I I you know I I joke that they have the best paper towels, they have freedom of speech, <laughs> <laughs> and they have the right to return. You can buy anything and return it the next day, which yeah, we don't have that. <laughs> So uh, I will use Chris Rock's quote, which I think is the best. He says that America is like an uncle who paid for your college, but molested you as a child. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's brilliant. Usually the bottom line for me on any subject comes from a comedian. One thing that America offers, and you and I have experienced this firsthand, is the ability to be whatever you want. And I think both you and I have changed careers. And what we are experiencing now is much more fulfilling for us. And yes, you're absolutely right about America's history and that they have to reconcile with it. And the way I see it, it's mostly from like a human rights activist's perspective. Yeah. So I always urge everyone that, you know, whatever the conflict, whatever the aggression, look at it through the lens of human rights. All humans, in fact, have inalienable rights to freedom, to life and to a secure life. And um, we have to remove our biases and then look at that. And I think then everything just falls in its place. See, in that sense, like in the sense of security and personal freedom, I feel it mostly in America. I don't feel it, you know, in Pakistan or in the West Bank. Because I think I think because America had a feminist revolution. Yeah. I don't know. I think we need a, a women's revolution more than anything else. So yesterday I was watching this uh, documentary on Netflix uh, and it was about Mossad, you know, the, the secret yeah. service agency in uh, in Israel. And there was this one guy and he said something so telling. He's an Asian and he had an asset like like a Palestinian guy who was giving him information and this this tells you like what the 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 first thing that has to be solved in in the middle east he says oh you know this one asset of mine i allowed him to go back to his village to settle a score and um the only thing i allowed him to do is to kill his sister because she was dishonoring the family but then he went and he like settled too many scores he killed this guy who he had has for his daughter's hand in marriage and the guy said no and he killed some other people And I thought, my God, this is like how violence, Mm -hmm. like a violent state breeds violent men. And and the fact that he said it so casually, like I allowed him to kill his sister. Like what? Like no matter what the sister did, you don't do that. Like you, you are like the Israeli state and you're supposed to be like more civilized than us. And we're the savages. And 
you know, that that was just that one part was so telling. I thought the first thing we need before we fight anything is sort of like a women's revolution, like 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 the movement mm-hmm. here that was led by Gloria Steinem. We haven't, I think that the Middle East hasn't had that. Uh, so true in terms of women's revolution and how women are change makers and peace builders. Yeah. And I think when women are involved, no matter what the aggression, and again, I am not an expert on Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I look at it always through lens of human rights. Yeah. And I and that's why I cannot comment on the, the conflict itself, but I can just look at it through lens of human rights. And I think there are many women who are peace builders on both sides, I believe, Yeah. Uh, on, on the Israeli side and on Palestinian side. And there are so many Jewish and Muslim women who are really trying to be build bridges and bring yeah. these communities together, which is extremely important. Susie, uh, moving on, this was like uh, the first segment, uh, the longest, probably the longest segment of the two. But now we'll move on to our rapid fire round. Okay. I, I expect short answers, okay. but you know, um, you're a comedian. You, you, can, you, you, can have, you can take liberty with it. Reading books or listening to music? Books. Books, oh listening to books also. L- listening to yeah, books, yeah, right? Yeah. So I'm one of those people who can listen to books. I yeah. can't read yeah. books. <laughs> if you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that be? Uh, this is Palestinian or Arab dish in general. It's called mluchiya. It's a, it's like a green, it's like sag, but slimier. <laughs> oh, so it's like spinach. It's like spinach. Yeah, it's, oh. uh, yeah, it's really good. And is it like common? Because I've been to some uh, Arab restaurants, never. They like, don't serve it in restaurants. It's like oh. a homemade dish. It's it's It comes from the word mulukiyya, which means like served for the kings. It's from the days of the pharaohs. Do you know how to cook it? I know how to cook it. Yeah. It's, then I'd it's probably a, come over and... It's a green leafy <laughs> vegetable that you just chop up and Okay, then I'm self-inviting. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> it's seasonal. So in the summer, I'll invite you. Okay. <laughs> if you could only take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? Books journals and my husband name three things on your bucket list bucket list I want to do uh, scuba diving and I want to live in Paris me too like, yeah so, I, mean, I mean I'm not greedy like not not <laughs> forever but like I want to live there for three months I've never been to France oh my god Paris is the, the, the French have figured out how to live <laughs> And the third thing, I would love to have like an anniversary party for our 20th anniversary. That's like a destination where, pe- you know, we were, ab- were able to like fly people. <laughs> Why not Paris then? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it could be Paris. It could be yeah. Paris, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you could have any superpower, what would that be? Mindfulness. Like to be able to be mindful in situations where I normally get angry. Yeah. You're moving forward failure, something that taught you so like, to be successful later in life. Um, I have so many failures. <laughs> <laughs> moving forward, like, you know, as a comedian, every time you bomb, it's it's a failure and it's, it's really good. It's good for you to bomb. But you're so good, Susie. Like oh, all no, the ones all that I've seen. All comedians bomb. It's a live, it's a format that you can only practice live. So, uh, yeah, I would say the last time I bombed, it was it was so funny. I, I had to go on stage after the Syrian activist and people were just not in the mood for comedy. I mean, this, is, this girl talked about like jumping in the Mediterranean and pushing a boat. And here I am like talking about my thighs. Like, <laughs> it, I was total. I totally bombed. And at, at first when it happens, you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to order the Uber from stage. <laughs> and then you feel bad for yourself. But then you realize the... 
Do what you realize like not a lot of it wasn't your fault. It's we try as much as we can comedians to control our environment. And when it's outside our control, it's just can go haywire. Your biggest achievement? My biggest achievement, I would say, honestly, this is like not feminist of me to say that, but it's marrying my husband. Like, I think he's the best thing that ever happened to me. Describe yourself in three words. Um, Obviously funny and authentic. Like, I really like I maybe this is more aspirational. Like, I just want to say what I mean and mean what I say. And um, generous. And what's the best piece of advice you ever got? The the best piece of, uh, to fail. Fail as much as you can. That's true. Your idea of vacation. Beach. Barbados. <laughs> <laughs> Your all-time favorite movie? Uh, Caramel by Nadine Labake. She actually has a movie now that's nominated for the Oscars called Capernaum. But her uh, second movie is called Caramel. It's about... Arab women. It's really beautiful. It's entertaining and it's is very it well done. Is it on Netflix? I'll just go it's and watch it. It's probably on Netflix. Yeah. Caramel. It refers to the the wax, you know, that Arab women use. Oh, wow. Yeah. Best Palestinian restaurant in NYC. Mm, Tanurin. It's in Brooklyn. It's like far out in the Brooklyn. Favorite emoji? Is the thumbs up. Thumbs up. The, I use the brown one usually. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I've been told I'm not that brown, but I was like, no, I am going to use that. Yeah, I'm not a big emoji person. If you get a lot of emojis from me, it means my son is on my phone. Oh, I I use emojis a lot. To the point where my daughter is in their words, like cringe. Um, (laughs) I do that. (laughs) Uh, Tea or coffee? Oh my God, this is so funny. Do I have a second to explain this? Yes. So we were big Thai people, my husband and I, in San Francisco. Like uh, uh, Arabs drink Turkish coffee, but I was never into that. So big Thai people always serving chai. And then we moved to New York and we stayed with this couple where she's Pakistani, husband is Italian, and they had like a coffee machine on, they had, mashallah, they had like a really nice home. And so they had a coffee machine on every floor and we just (laughs) dumped chai like for coffee. And I've been feeling guilty ever since, like, I feel like we should write chai like a breakup letter and like make it a sick mixtape or something you know because we've completely switched to coffee I can't give up on chai and it's like tea for those listeners who don't know and by the way it's like it's not chai tea that's one thing that I really (laughs) hate chai is just tea milk yeah it's like you know and chai is chai like if you say chai tea you you're saying tea tea (laughs) <laughs> right <laughs> so yeah no but chai tea is like like you know the stuff you get from Trader Joe's that yeah. has like cardamom and like my husband call it calls it biryani chai yeah it's different <laughs> uh, home is home home is uh, it, it took me a long time to realize this but home is wherever I am like yeah. like I, I like to create a home thank you so much Susie this was great Thank you. I really enjoyed this. And, this was so much fun. And keep doing what you're doing. And uh, please, uh, I'll try to share um, your information on our website, www.alienchroniclespod.com. Do you have a website, Susie, that you can share with our listeners? I do, but there's, it's susiesaysso.com, but there's not much on there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think that's how you found me. Yeah, that's how yeah. I found you, yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I would also like to thank all the listeners for joining us today. And please subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to check out our website at www.alienchroniclespod.com. We have some fun stuff coming up. Also, if you have a story to tell or any new ideas, please contact us at info at alienchroniclespod.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Chronicles Alien and you can find us on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. 
please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story and in the meantime stay connected Thank you.